Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics with me, Steve Richards. This is the weekly podcast. Thank you all so much for tuning in wherever you are in the UK and around the world. And I can tell you, we have got some fantastic questions coming up from the UK and from various parts of Europe, lots of different bits of Europe uh, today and really kind of shedding light on all kinds of issues. So that's to come. Uh, If it's okay with you, I'm going to reflect a bit on Keir Starmer and his opening pitch in 2022. Uh, Opening pitches in a year are very interesting for all kinds of reasons, which I'll explain uh, in a moment. Uh, So yeah, so we've got that. We've got some fantastic questions. Before all of that, just a reminder, January the 24th, Rock and Roll Politics, the New Year special, is live at King's Place starting at 7 o'clock. It's streaming live as well from those of you kind of watching on the moon and can't quite get down to uh, King's Place. Um, And I thought what I'm going to do, I mean, it will partly depend on what's happening at the time. And things move so fast on one level in politics at the moment. Who knows what will be happening by Monday, January the 24th. But what I thought I'm going to try and do as part of our evening together, um, and it will be partly determined by you, and of course we'll be having the usual predictions in the hall and elsewhere, um, is, well, usual as in it will be a different one, and usual as it will probably prove to be totally wrong. But um, yeah, the degree to which the pressures piling on Johnson as Prime Minister are unusual in their range and intensity. How do they compare? I mean, when you sort of start thinking about them, various investigations into his conduct, the divisions within the Tory Parliamentary Party and beyond, candidates for the leadership circling, Um, How does that compare with the fall of Thatcher, the ingredients that brought about the fall of Thatcher in that sort of extraordinary Shakespearean autumn of 1990? How do they compare with the pressures on John Major, or indeed Tony Blair post-Iraq, or indeed Gordon Brown during his short premiership, where he was constantly faced with internal insurrections, which have been largely forgotten about since, but at the time, to put it mildly, bore heavily on him. Quite hard to respond to a global financial crisis where people are plotting to remove you. But anyway, uh, let's let's on that evening together contextualise the unquestionably uh, dramatic year that's going to unfold. Uh, within the Tory party. So that's um, January the 24th, live at King's Place. There'll be many other elements to it, and I say, who knows where we'll be in terms of um, the kind of urgent events of that day and night. But um, let's all get together then, one way or another, hopefully live in lots of cases at King's Place. If you can't make it there on the stream, see you then. Now, before anything else, if it's okay, what I'm going to do uh, is something quite unusual, really, which is um, I'm going to focus on a speech. Not only unusual for this podcast, but unusual generally. Speeches, you know, are real gems. It's, It's fascinating. John Major said something very perceptive when he was prime minister. 
he was complaining about all the leaks and things. And yet he said whenever he made a speech in the House of Commons, no one reported it or not much of it. And he said that if instead of making the speech in the House of Commons, he had leaked a bit of it to a newspaper or the BBC, it would be a lead story. But when you make a speech, it's largely ignored or underplayed. Um, Now, in fact, Starmer's speech that opened the year before he got COVID for the 60th time was not underreported by no means in some cases, or in some respects, it was overplayed. Um, But I'm making a general point really about speeches. They are gold dust. They are the best way of finding out what a politician, a leader, or whoever is thinking or trying to do with politics. Much better than kind of off-the-record, unattributable sources, because speeches are worked on for days, sometimes weeks, sometimes months, and therefore the public manifestation of it it tells you all you need to know about where a leader is at any given time. It applies, by the way, to all kinds of things. Over Christmas and New Year, I was reading a lot about, because you know Robert Harris's uh, novel about uh, Chamberlain and Munich? Um, well, a Netflix version of it is uh, coming out. And I started read. I read the novel, but started reading more about that period, the build-up to Munich and appeasement and Churchill's view and Hitler's view and so on. And the best guide I found were the speeches. You know, so, for example, it's very easy now to say, you know, if someone refers to a Chamberlain speech in September 1938 or something in the House of Commons, if you Google Hansard, September the 17th, 1938, Chamberlain, up pops the Chamberlain speech. And you can see in those speeches and in the speeches of Churchill at the time and others, a picture emerging, a picture in Chamberlain's case of hope, naivety, um, a, a genuine desire to avoid another war so close to the First World War, and and in others, other kind of thought processes going on of multi-layered complexity. Anyway, speeches, they are very revealing and in many ways undercovered. So what about the Starmer speech? This is the one he opened his New Year pitch with. Um, and I think it tells you quite a lot. The first thing in general terms is this. While I say speeches are fascinating, I'm about to focus on his speech. Um, it shows that in terms of the musicality of politics, of getting everything pitch perfect, uh, the Starmer team aren't there yet in general terms. So this was hyped up as a very big speech. He made it in the West Midlands. Journalists from London travelled up there to cover the speech. It wasn't big enough to justify all of that. And on one level, therefore, there was a somewhat anticlimactic air to it. Uh, And some people said, you know, where's the substance? As if he was launching a a manifesto. It had been quite wrong to punctuate a speech with election pledges, where no one has a clue when that election is going to be. But the bigness wasn't quite there to justify all of that. However, they are always interesting. And this one tells us quite a lot about Starmer's thinking as he embarks on what, for him, is absolutely a pivotal year because he begins the year ahead in the polls, um, including his personal ratings vis-a-vis Johnson. It's usually very hard for Labour leaders of the opposition to be ahead in terms of personal ratings. Um, He is, and his party is as well. Now, that in itself means he has a platform he has never had up until now. And he will be taken more seriously in the media. And of course, it's the media that mediates to the voters as a result of that. It's a great opportunity. And if he makes it a lead, um, or makes the most of it, a lead feeds on itself. 
um, in the same way as you can have the reverse process. If you're behind in the polls, we say, oh, what's the point? He's going to lose anyway. And, and, and view contributions through such a negative prism. I'll give you a precise example. In his speech, Starmer highlighted three former leaders as models uh, because they won elections. And it's rare in Labour, you know, <laughs> quite a few parties around the world. You'd have to name more than three, but there we go. Uh, such as Labour's vote-losing capacity, he had three. And so he cited in his speech uh, the other week, um, well, y- you know who they are, Blair, Wilson and Attlee. And I noticed afterwards on Twitter and in some of the columns, it was absolutely fascinating. You know, Starmer is confident enough now to cite these people, you know, broken away from Corbyn, can cite the great winners and all the rest of it. Well, he's been doing that all the way through his leadership. His first party conference speech, um, he did exactly the same. He said the three winners are his models, uh, Blair, Wilson and Attlee. But hardly anyone noticed then. The pandemic had erupted. The conference was a virtual conference. And so uh, no one noticed. And the next election was so distant and Johnson had won a landslide and all the rest of it, no one had noticed. Here's another example. A lot of analysis of this speech was, again, through that sort of cliched prism. Oh, he's showing he's not Corbyn. Um, at last he's got the courage to show he's not Corbyn and all this kind of stuff. Yet that first party conference, that virtual conference, the slogan was under new management. You cannot indicate a desire for distance more brutally, frankly, than that uh, slogan. But again, nobody really noticed. Now he's ahead in the polls in a way that is appears to be more significant anyway than other times when he's had a fleeting lead. People say, oh, yeah, yeah, oh, that's interesting. He's, he's distancing himself from Corbyn, he's doing this, he's doing that. That is the advantage of that poll lead. Uh, you might have said things a hundred times before, but people weren't listening. Now, frankly, voters still aren't. Most voters won't know he's even made a speech, let alone what's in it but the journalists paid attention. And that's the first barrier you have to pass as a leader, to be taken seriously by the media. And because of that poll lead, he is. So what about the speech itself? Um, it began, and sorry, I've got it in front of me. I'm not, don't worry, I'm not going to read the whole damn thing out. I, you know, you, you would, even if you're running 10K while you're listening, you would fall asleep during the 10K. Um, but I'm just going to read bits, the, the beginning bits. And he began by saying, I want to do something that leaders of the opposition rarely do. I want to celebrate the country we live in. Um, Now, that's an interesting opening line for, well, several reasons. First of all, it's quite clear that, uh, I don't know this for sure, but I can tell that the focus groups that inform and can potentially paralyze leaders have indicated that voters don't like it when any politician, in inverted commas, talks their country down. There have also been one or two columns recently, one from the brilliant Stephen Bush, currently of the New Statesman, about to go to the Financial Times, saying a challenge for Starmer is to show an optimism about the country like um, Blair and Cameron managed to do in opposition. Um, Now, they would have read that and said, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, we can't just be seen talking it down, this country. So, that opening is a response to those kind of things. It happens not to be true in the sense that he says, I want to do something that leaders of the opposition rarely do. They all do it. They all try and square the circle of saying the government has been a disaster while hailing what they have to say uh, is the greatness of the country. 
Uh, Ed Miliband tried it in all kinds of different ways. And incidentally, he tried to frame an argument around patriotism as well. Um, Cameron, I've mentioned, you know, let the sun shine and all this kind of vacuous nonsense. Um, So they all do it. Um, And there is nothing new in it. But to open a speech with that is fine. Um, you, you begin by conveying a fundamental optimism. So that's okay. Um, then he moves on from having said there is so much for the British to be proud of. The whole thing, by the way, as usual, two huge Union Jacks uh, draped behind him. Very clunky, but if he feels the need to do it to convey patriotism, okay, you know. Um, so... Um, very upbeat start to the speech. Um, but inevitably, as a start, fairly empty. Uh, because anyone can say, oh, yeah, this country's great. I feel great about it. Um, that's the kind of uh, opening thought. Um, then we move on to what he um, framed, really, um, as the big themes of his leadership. So starting off by saying Britain's great, um, and then he um, goes on from there. He outlines then some of the problems with Britain. The cost of living is increasing, energy bills, etc. And then he goes into this. I want to start the new year by making a pledge of straight leadership. Today, I want to introduce my contract with the British people. This will be a solemn agreement about what this country needs and how a good government should conduct itself. Now, again, this is quite vague and yet has the potential to become more interesting. It is a possible way through um, explaining the relationship between government and the electorate, which is incidentally becoming... The key theme in Britain, look at how this government is agonising over how to intervene in the energy markets, a theme of last week's uh, podcast. Look at how um, Theresa May talked about the good that government can do. Look at how the state has had to intervene in the pandemic and so on. So a contract which implies mutual responsibilities is a space in which, in a way that most voters would accept, um, you can talk about the role of government in a way that New Labour found very, very difficult to do. It's interesting. Uh, I heard an interview with Peter Mandelson the other day, and he said the New Labour era was all about the enabling state. And he's right on one level, it was. But at the time, Blair and Brown didn't really dare frame it in that way. They never really talked about the state at all uh, because of their fear that it would appear like a return to the 1970s. Now, um, this era is so different and the challenges facing Uh, the opposition, and indeed all of us, are so different that there is the space for exploring it. But anyway, Starmer doesn't do that. He says the first term in the... Explicitly, anyway. He says the first term in the contract is security. Now, who is against security? It's a very safe theme. Um, No one goes around saying, if it's all right with you, I'd like to be insecure. Um... So how does he go on to define it? And this is quite interesting. Everyone has the basic right to feel safe in their own community, implying, I think, in that respect, an agenda on crime um, still to be fleshed out. He then makes the case that the NHS is part of a sense of security and to have job security. So within that, There is potentially a radical agenda, not fleshed out, but the framing is wholly apolitical, security. You know, that doesn't fit anywhere on an ideological spectrum. 
Next in his contract is prosperity. Now, once again, the safest of possible terms. The framing of it could not be less uh, more less contentious. Prosperity. Who's against prosperity? No one's going to go around and say, "If it's all right with you, I prefer to be much poorer." Um, you know, so it's a very safe, cautious framing. But how does he define it? Everyone should have the opportunity to thrive. Well, what does that mean in policy terms? How do you create that opportunity? Um, now, I would argue that opportunity to thrive would uh, should be based on aiming for the best modern public services in Europe. Um, you know, look at Northern Europe and all the rest of it, way ahead of us at the moment. Um, but there are other means. But let's see how that is fleshed out. To realise our ambitions and make a good life for ourselves, well, that's a platitude. Um, who's against realising ambitions and so on? To have the skills we need to prosper is the third bit of prosperity. Now, that is potentially ambitious. Where is the training going to come from? Um, what are the skills? Who's going to organise the skills as the technological communications revolution intensifies? Um, and how do we make sure that we own these changes and the changes don't own us, if you like? And it is to be properly skilled and adaptable and so on. But how? Then he moves on to his third term in his contract. Respect is the third one. Well, again, you know, it is a very small C conservative framing. Uh, oh, yeah, respect. I respect you. And again, who's in favour of disrespect or whatever the opposite of respect is? Um, and this is how he defines it largely. Everyone has the right to live in places we care for and have our lives and ambitions taken seriously to be valued for who we are and what we do. That's the most vague of the lot. Um, and there are some worries about the somewhat clunky framing with the Union Jack at the back. It's so obviously um, aimed at those red wall seats, um, you know, and the values espoused, which Labour apparently had left behind, and which he wants to sort of stress in capital letters, are embracing once again. Um, but the other two actually do provide the potential for quite interesting policy development, um, if he dares to do it, and, and and in ways which, incidentally, I think will be quite popular. Um, but, uh, you know, we, we, we will wait and see. Um, th th this is not in itself... Uh, you know, a manifesto, nor should it be. And nor do I worry particularly about the apolitical framing. I think the reality is, uh, well, all we have is the evidence of the past, that uh, Labour won in 1964 uh, on the theme of modernisation. You know, the Wilson, the white heart heat of the technological revolution. Um, and Wilson, so that was Wilson's kind of, safe framing for what was actually quite a radical program. And Blair in 97, a less radical program, um, but a similar sort of framing, modernization and competence versus an outdated conservative party that had become incompetent. Very safe framing under which there were some incremental but radical reforms from the minimum wage to devolution and all kinds of other things. They won. When the framing is more overtly ideological in England, Labour hasn't won. So there is some evidence in favour of framing arguments around, you know, these apolitical, banal terms, prosperity, who's against prosperity, security and so on. So fair enough, that, that's fine. And, you know, you, he is utterly focused on winning the next election. That's why he highlighted the winners. 
Um, but the policy development is always the tricky bit. Actually, they've got quite a lot of policies. And the, the art now will be to connect the policies to those themes and convey two different things, uh, reassurance and excitement. Of course, there has to be reassurance. Um, when Labour was slaughtered in December 2019, but there has to be excitement too. Uh, Blair did it, I, you know, that term radical centre, utterly meaningless term really, but radical sounded exciting and centre sounded reassuring. Um, so after that speech, quite a lot of people said, oh, he's, a Blair, he, he's now following Blair. That is dangerous for Keir Starmer for two reasons. One, no leader has won an election framed by a predecessor. Every leader who has won has appeared to own the future in a distinct way. In other words, when Blair won in 97, people weren't going around saying, oh, he's basing himself on Harold Wilson, say. And who else has won? When Thatcher won in 79 from opposition, no one in their right minds was saying, oh, she's Ted Heath or she's so-and-so or, oh, she's not Ted Heath because he lost, but she's more this. They are distinct, authentic individuals who appear to own the future. And if he, I, I think some of his team might be briefing, oh, he's like Blair and all the rest of it, because so many journalists are writing it up, they're making a big mistake. He needs to appear to own this future, which is very, very dif different from 1997. And one in which some of the taboos in the mid-90s have gone, like the role of government. The role of government now is the question, key question in British politics. And I gave some examples last week of where actually quite daring interpretations of the role of government need to be applied. Um, and in a way, uh, the 97 model in policy terms obviously doesn't work now. And so for lots of reasons... He needs Keir Starmer to escape the idea that this is Blairism once more. Um, and let's see whether he can... It's not entirely his fault. I mean, there are so many kind of political journalists who were kind of brought up in that mid-90s period, whose framing is constantly in that period. Um, so even if he said, I believe in, I don't know, nationalising the moon, it would be sort of, oh, yeah, well, he's breaking from Blair and, oh, you know, all this kind of stuff. Uh, to some extent, this is the fate of leaders who succeed long-serving prime ministers. The Tories are still trying to work out whether they are Thatcherite, following Thatcher, or moving on from Thatcher and Thatcherism. And Labour still haven't fully worked out Blair. Did Blair win because he wasn't Labour? Did Blair win because he was on the right? If he was on the left, did he win by disguising it? And so on. Um, and Starmer needs, in a way, to leave all that behind and make an analysis of the huge challenges and opportunities and say quite overtly, yeah, this great country faces many challenges and opportunities after four terms of a Conservative government. It's not tricky to convey an optimism about a country, but the challenges that arise partly from global reasons, but partly as a consequence for four terms of Conservative government. The danger of saying, as he does rightly, it's patriotic to point out the flaws in a country. The problem is it's, it, it sounds too minor compared with the sort of seismic crises um, this country faces, some of which arise from four terms of one party rule. Anyway, um, so my analysis is, yeah, framing fine. And I'm, you know, some people say, oh, you should, you should be much more daring and all this kind of stuff. That they use those apolitical, unthreatening terms. But be big in the analysis of this country in terms of its uh, the, the challenges and the opportunities. Combine the two. The opportunities are the sunny, optimistic bit. This great country, what opportunities arise if we do X, Y, and Z? Make it exciting and thrilling. Uh, you know, anyway. Um, blimey. Anyway, I, by the way, that speech, I've just 
that's the uh, that's the opening. I could go on for hours, but I won't. I won't. I'm going to go to your questions. First one from uh, Jane Weimark, who says, I'm happily joining the ranks of your dog-walking podcast listeners. I like to think of us all tramping through wind and rain, pondering current politics. Well, yeah, there's a metaphor for that weather as um, we all reflect on politics. But I'm thrilled, Jane, that you're there with your dog through the storms. Uh, Jane says, this morning I read uh, David... I can't, I'm, is it uh, Olu Sago's piece in The Guardian on the Colston Four? And as I'm currently prepping for not only a study of Heart of Darkness, yeah, aren't we all? I Google for further information about the whole Colston Four affair. Found myself reading a long piece from the Daily Mail, which stopped me in my tracks. The strident tone of it seemed to me to rival some of the creepiest characters in a Conrad novel. Uh, but then I thought, uh, then I thought, would a regular Daily Mail reader similarly coming across a piece in The Guardian find his tone just as shocking? So my question is, do you, me, I suppose, or all of us read The Daily Mail? Should I, Jane, or the rest of us read The Daily Mail? That, I mean, you, you are caught up there, uh, Jane, in, in, in just about the most emotive kind of uh, craziness of the moment, statues and all the rest of it. Um, uh, but the broader picture of, uh, well, let me answer, do I read the Daily Mail? I don't, actually. And it's not because I don't uh, want to find out what others are thinking, perhaps far removed from my own position. I've just never been interested in it. I do read a lot of people who I disagree with. It's hard not to in the newspaper world. I kind of read The Spectator. I disagree with a lot of them, but it's very interesting and intelligently written on the whole. The Times, you know, all this. I've never been interested in the mail i don't know why because some people tell me it's a you, know, you might disagree with it but it's a very well put together paper i can i can sort of guess the kind of things it's saying and it, it means it's weird it's a bit like not being on twitter i mean i am on twitter i'm wholly addicted to twitter i can't imagine life without it and some people i think it's impossible to imagine life without uh the mail but it's not one i read but you will get yeah you know, kind of an opposite shrill view on anything related to the sort of so-called culture wars, which I'm I'm not that kind of an expert on. I I just I I keep away from it actually. Um, so, but yeah, so I don't. But I and I don't think you should. I don't think anyone needs to, unless you want to. If you want to, great. And say so it's not about opposition. I got a, a tweet from. Uh, a Brexit group last week saying, oh, Steve said this in the podcast, blah, blah, blah. And I replied to the tweet, so I'm thrilled you listen. You know, you, you kind of ardent Brexiteer, and they listen, disagree. Um, anyway, I don't know, I was so polite that I, I didn't get a reply. They're probably a bit taken aback. Um, but I just, I don't know, I kind of find the mail a bit boring. Um, but there we go. Um, now, James Buckley, he's our regular Portugal correspondent. Now, James, I'm only reading this because you accused me of not reading something you'd written. I'm sure that I can't remember that. But anyway, uh, because it's about the whole Jeremy Corbyn thing, which I find now circuitous. But James, because we all live his life vicariously, his Portugal life with the sunshine and the cooking and all the rest of it and you know, sitting by the river or sea listening to the podcast. James writes, anyway, uh, I wanted to uh, say that we might do well on the Corbyn front to recall the painful testimony of Luciana Berger, Ruth Smith, Louise Elman, and many others. The fact is that Corbyn was very clearly at best indifferent, if not outright cruel, when uh, Berger and Smith were suffering vile anti-Semitic abuse um, whether or not Corbyn's behaviour came from a place of anti-Semitism might be beside the point. It was and remains deeply worrying regardless. Um, uh, so case closed, uh, <clears throat> says James. Um, and he says, oh yeah, Happy New Year. Thank you very much indeed. Enjoy yourself in 
uh, Portugal. To your point, well, you know my answer because we're going, you know, we're going round in circles. But I'll just kind of anti-Semitism is evil. Um, if you think Corbyn is evil, um, I can see how you could make that connection. I don't think he is. I note that people like Margaret Hodge. Uh, worked with him very closely in the 80s when she was an Islington MP. Sorry, when she was leader of Islington Council and he was an Islington MP. It was never said, she never said it then. I know she didn't think it then. In fact, she didn't think Corbyn was anti-Semitic. When I interviewed her for a Radio 4 programme I did about Corbyn's first year as leader, I asked her straight, is he anti-Semitic? She said no. Now, I know she then changed her mind. But Corbyn is in his 70s. You would have thought people with that uh, astute awareness of anti-Semitism, uh, like Margaret, would have identified it in him in an earlier phase of his life. So um, uh, anyway, you, 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 we've been through it again and again and again, James, and I know you disagree with me, but have a great time in Portugal, and you've made your point, and many listeners agree with you, James. Douglas Beattie, my question would be, can you see a way in which the battleground of the next election might be around the UK getting back into the EU if the economy suffers over the next 12 months? No, Douglas, no way. There's no way Labour are going to go into that election or indeed the Lib Dems pledge to um, get uh, Britain back into the European uh, Union. But Brexit will be quite a big issue at the election because Johnson, assuming it is him, and I'm by no means sure of that actually, uh, but he said he's going to make Brexit a big issue. So he will. He thinks it's to its advantage. There is a way to make it to his disadvantage, but not, I'm afraid, by putting the case to go back in. Uh, it's too early. Uh, you know, there's been a referendum and a general election where that case was roundly slaughtered. Well, not slaughtered, actually. Uh, 52 48 is not a, sl- a slaughter. Caroline Morgan uh, wrote in with some very interesting information. Caroline works in Brussels. And she says, on the EU Brexit front, something to watch over the next six months, and we're already getting a taste of it, is that France holds the EU presidency from January to June. This has repercussions for the UK for two main reasons. One, France is more pugnacious over Brexit than its predecessor, Slovenia. And two, Macron is up for re-election in April and will want to put his diplomatic skills on display to make sure that his electorate is aware of his toughness on Brexit. And so we're going to see, uh, Caroline thinks, a more muscular French presidency compared with the previous presidency, France has already been pretty muscular in relation to Brexit. Um, So yeah, it's going to be um, uh, very, very interesting to see how that plays out, not least with old Liz Truss replacing Frosty, being very, almost out, uh, machoing Frosty in her approach. You know, you watch it, you Europeans. Mighty Britain is ready to trigger the Article 16 brackets. It will affect Mighty Britain much more adversely than you lot, but we are going to do it. She doesn't do the brackets bit. Um, So, yeah, there we go. It's um, uh, interesting um, and worth worth watching. Thank you, Caroline. Good luck in uh, Brussels. Um, Michael Forte uh, writes, uh, oh yeah, also on Macron. Yeah, now this is interesting. Um, I thought I'd send you this report of Macron saying he wanted to, in inverted commas, piss off the unvaccinated. Um, here's a quote of his uh, hip from the full report. So you'll have all heard Macron's got all macho, sorry to use the, that silly term again, over uh, the anti-vaccinators in France. This is the full quote, because it's a good framing of this freedom argument, which we've talked about in the podcast. The co- This is Macron uh, translated. The concept of freedom brandished by some of our compatriots to invoke the freedom freedom not to get vaccinated stops where the freedom of others is interfered with, where the lives of others can be endangered. When some people make their freedom, which actually becomes irresponsibility, 
their slogan. Not only do they endanger the lives of others, but they restrict the freedom of others. And I can't accept that. Uh, And uh, Michael points out, it struck me that this was pretty much what you, me, I have been saying about Steve Baker. And he said, yeah, you frame an argument around freedom to counter the Steve Baker libertarian crowd who think freedom is their theme. And it's not. And Macron put it very well, I thought. Um, and I thanks for the full translation. I'd heard he had done the pissing off bit. Um, but that's a really good uh, framing from Macron. I think he must be listening to the podcast. It's big in p- parts of France. Um, so thank you very much. Uh, Noah Keat writes, it's often argued uh, the government will face true accountability for the handling of the COVID-19 pandemic uh, with the new um, numerous COVID inquiries. I'm not so sure. Firstly, given the volume of information any inquiry will have to examine, they could take so long that this government will be out of office. Second, COVID fatigue uh, is only likely to increase. Um, yeah, I agree. I have no expectation of a public inquiry uh, bringing down Boris Johnson or anyone else partly because Johnson could well be gone before the public inquiry is completed. But also, I think we know what it's going to say, roughly. Um, it will highlight many appalling uh, government cock-ups. Um, it will praise the government for the vaccines, just like the Joint uh, Select Committee report of um, uh, that Jeremy Hunt presided over, you know, the Health Select Committee with the Business Select Committee. Um and I don't think it will be will have huge political consequences. I no public inquiry does, um, and that one won't. Back to France, uh, Dominica Jewell, our French correspondent. Some French commentators have been making connections with certain aspects of possible outcomes in relation to the Northern Ireland Protocol issue. These include Biden's close interest in Northern Ireland. Um, the U.S. access to the Elysee, um, and and several others. One theory, in light of the above, is that in the absence of the detested frost in Brussels, I thought they all loved him, Dominica. No, I'm joking. Uh, Oh, have you seen, by the way, Frosty? I told you he would start writing vacuous columns and things and he's done one in the mail on sunday about um oh you know johnson's got to change it's all got to be low tax deregulation he's never stood for an election where any of these would be tested um and what a betrayal of johnson who gave frost this political position in the government and the house of lords uh if i were johnson i would be more apoplectic about frosty than some of us are Anyway, Dominica wonders whether Trust will seek a deal whilst at the same time needing to have some meat with which to feed the ERG. That is her balancing act, Dominica, because as Foreign Secretary, she will not want to be a Foreign Secretary that alienates the United States. She'll want to show off, you know, in the US, look at me, mighty Liz, Trust, look at how close I am to the US. But she will want to, with her leadership ambition, see to be tough on Europe to appease that membership and those MPs. How she does it, I'm not quite sure, but it's not straightforward for her. Old Frosty, he just wanted to, you know, play tough, totally to Britain's disadvantage, but there we go. Now, David Evans writes about, um, it's come up every now and again, you know, when party people work together, and we've had the example, it's in my book on prime ministers we never had, of Rab Butler appearing to be so close to Gateskill that the phrase Butskillism was formed. And um, uh, David reveals, actually, there were sort of family ties between those two families, Um Anyway, uh, and and so butskillism was sort of a term for consensual political working. David wonders, can you think of any modern day relationships where an MP shares close family ties with a number member on the opposite side of the house? I can't, but you're better connected than me. Well, I can't either, Um, uh, David. And so 
over to all of you. Um, David adds, Clemency, I listened to the podcast while stomping around the Essex marshes. Oh, thank you. We greatly enjoy it. Oh, that's that's great. And oh, the Essex marshes, brilliant place to reflect on the wild world of uh, politics. And if anyone can think of family connections from the two wings of politics, do get in touch. A great one. Paul Cooper says, do I think the next two years will be more positioning for the UK election? Or do we have politicians that are prepared to tackle the increasingly urgent challenges in British politics? And how does this compare to previous governments? All governments, Paul. And this is a real problem, but it's called, uh, you know, it's democracy. After the first half of a Bart parliament become obsessed with the general election. And Johnson certainly will be if he has the space to do things in the way that he wants to, big if. But he won't be alone in that. I mean, Tony Blair was so obsessed about winning elections. One of his first observations after the 1997 landslide was to tell his cabinet the campaign for the next election begins now. It makes it harder for them to take the sometimes tough decisions required. And you watch all... The trouble is this current government is one of the things I'm going to be reflecting on at King's Place on January the 24th can't decide what is in their electoral interest. In other words, Johnson, rightly in my view, has decided you have to raise money for the NHS and social care. Frosty and that wing of the party that Frosty now has identified himself as being part of believe that low taxes, low regulation are the way to win an election. And Starmer, as we all know, is in that boat. So that's an interesting dilemma for the governing party at the moment but no the election will be the priority from now on and people will become increasingly obsessed by it it's why on the opposite side you have a leader of the opposition saying you know my big themes are respect prosperity and so on it's not going to alienate that isn't going to alienate a single voter other things might thank you paul andrew anderson writing writing he says from a chilly edinburgh I've just been reading Dominic Cummings' latest missive. Don't know if any of you've read it. Dominic Cummings' latest one is a very long one about party gate and what's happening within this government. They are worth reading, I think. I expect the media will focus on his party comments. Oh, I just have. Sorry, sorry, Andrew. But I thought the interesting bit was on his section on how political hacks don't understand where real power lies. He is absolutely fascinating about where power lies in government. Um, he rightly says that the media focuses on ministers, many of whom have virtually no power at all of any significance. And, and where it lies is with certain senior officials, some advisors potentially, and so on. Where power lies is a rich theme, Andrew. One for this podcast at some point, uh, I, I think, or maybe a live show. Where does power really lie in the UK? Robert Bromberg uh, says, is it a coincidence that this government is plagued by examples of managerial incompetence? Because the managerial competent ones within the Conservative Party were kicked out. He's referring, of course, to David Gore, Ken Clark, Rory Stewart, and all of that lot. So, yeah, inevitably, if you purge a parliamentary party of some of its big, talented, interesting figures, um, you are going to be weaker in the end. Now, actually, on their terms, what they did was quite clever, because I could never work out pre that December 2019 election, pre that autumn, how they could go into an election on Brexit when senior figures in that party were opposed to the Brexit Johnson and Frosty were trying to create. And the answer is they didn't do it. They got rid of them. So there was a kind of unity, but it was a unity of a weaker political force. Um, oh, Robert says, I also bake bread and have a really good recipe or two. Oh, well, let us know, Robert, if you bake bread. I know you walk listening to the podcast in beautiful countryside. Um, but if you bake bread um, listening to the podcast, do let us know the recipe. I, you know, we, we're into... Uh, pleasure and well-being here, not just solving the world's problems. Well, some of us are into pleasure as well. 
Harriet Anderson, I completely agree with you regarding, oh, the energy market and the need in the end, if regulation isn't going to work, you're going to have to work out how the state takes a greater control. I do wonder whether you could sell this to the electorate. Yep. What are your thoughts? Difficult, but not impossible. I I form this view about the energy market, not working for either the users or the companies, and could see no regulatory framework where that was solved. Um, Therefore, you take it over, but only you don't pay off all the companies. You take it over if they go bust. That was based on conversations I had with Tory voters on a guided walking holiday over the new year. Yeah, I think you could sell it, but you have to frame it very carefully, as with everything in opposition. And that's why I think the apolitical framing of Starmer's pitch is okay as long as it then develops. Um, uh, Jay Jackson, it's been in the news a lot recently, the announcement, oh yeah, drug policy. Now, Jay, I'm going to say a bit like um, I was saying to Jane earlier, uh, I'm going to keep a bit of distance with it. I'm not an expert on drugs policy, but Jay says, um, you know, that Sadiq Khan has announced this pilot scheme um, over uh, the legalization of certain drugs and so on. It's called the pilot diversion scheme. Uh, Jay says, I think the diversion scheme is a huge step in the right direction. Yet when asked about it, Keir Starmer, undoubtedly with an eye on red wall voters, doubled down on his prohibitionist stance. Uh, He points out that Labour has a terrible track record on drug policy and have never backed substantive reform, even under Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, Yeah, um, I think part of the reason, Jay, I just don't know enough about the substance of it. You've read the substance. You've read, you, you know more about it. But um, what I will say, it's it's much easier for Sadiq Khan in London uh, to introduce an experimental scheme than for Starmer trying to woo, as you indicate, Red Wall and other voters to do so. Um, I think there's a danger of him, Starmer, being far too cautious. We'll have to wait and see. It depends how he develops those themes on a whole range of things. But on this, I can understand it. It's partly about the space a leader has with the electorate he or she faces. And London, it's just easier to do these things than if you are a national leader in small-c conservative England. Uh, But let me know, you, you may well disagree with that. Rick Frame, what if Keir Starmer wins the next election on the back of the slogan, make Brexit work? Surely he will quickly succumb, as with the Tory uh, regimes, because we all know that it can't work. Or is he starting a conversation, knowing it isn't working, and hoping that public opinion, and perhaps a new slogan, Brexit isn't working, will have more of a ring of truth to it? Well, Rick, I can tell you that I'm sure privately, well, we know, again, look at his speeches when he was shadow Brexit secretary. He doesn't think it's going to work, but he doesn't think he can lead an argument over that after the December 2019 election. And so if there are going to be changes, it will be led by public opinion and not by politicians, certainly at this point. Lizzie wrote a long, very interesting email about how she thinks electoral reform might be a way of healing the culture war. She sent a shorter version, PR, a way to heal the culture war because parties will be forced to work together. I think even the working together of parties won't necessarily heal the culture war, which is in a way less about the sort of familiar dividing lines between parties. And and one of the things more broadly, uh, Lizzie, uh, about electoral reform that I have doubts about is this thing about, isn't it great when parties work together? Sometimes, but not always. I mean, the essence of democracy is to have disagreements. If they all agreed, we wouldn't have any debate at all. But, and by the way, I think the Conservative Lib Dem coalition, which was hailed early on as grown-up politics, two parties working together, is not a good model of what happens when two parties work together. Sorry, Lizzie, I'm still sceptical about this whole electoral reform thing. Now, it doesn't mean I don't realise that if uh, 
Keir Starmer wants to be Prime Minister, he may well have to work with other parties post the election. There is clearly going to be informal kind of comings together with non-Tory parties, though not a formal one, in the build-up to the next election. Thank you, Lizzie, for your longer one, which I've read, and your shorter version. Uh, Sean Colston, Coulston, uh, just in the middle of the Prime Minister's we never had, after having flu-like symptoms over Christmas. Uh, Sean, I hope reading the book didn't give you flu or COVID. My God. Anyway, I hope if you got COVID, the book was a kind of comforting form of escapism. Oh, oh yeah, Sean's on about electoral packs. Uh, my interest was piqued when I noticed an interview with Starmer, which indicated resources couldn't be poured into seats where the Lib Dems were the main challenger. Do you agree that this strategy seems reminiscent of the 1990s, but in a different political context? It's a new context uh, in every respect, Sean. Uh, But Starmer's right about this, and it is similar to the 1997 build-up election where the Lib Dems and Labour had no formal pact, but there was clearly an informal coming together on some policy areas. And Ashdown, as Ed Davey has done now, has indicated the Lib Dems are part of an anti-Tory force, not equidistant between both parties. Whereas Nick Clegg, it seems to me, had moved closer to the Tories in that famous 2010 election, even if it was more the numbers after that result that propelled him into that particular coalition. Um, So we're back in that sense to the build-up to 97, but there's no other way of doing it, that particular thing. Parties can dance together to some extent, but not wholly embrace uh, for all the reasons we've discussed many times. Now, Margaret, thank you, Sean. Margaret Coulthrop, last week when I was talking about the gas market, I quoted Harold Macmillan as saying when Thatcher privatised all these um, previously owned sectors, uh, he, he, he said, uh, you know, con- complained about her selling off the family silver. Margaret says it was Ted Heath who said that. Margaret, I think it's Harold Macmillan. I haven't had time to check, but I'm pretty sure it was Macmillan. I can almost hear him saying it. So there we go. Um, but you're, you're an expert. You, you tell me if I'm wrong. Well, you have told me I'm wrong. I still think I'm right, Margaret. Um, Robert uh, Mariaho, I hope I've pronounced your surname correctly, Robert. At the time of writing this, the UK has been run for 12 consecutive years by the Conservatives. In any other European nation, apart from Merkel's Germany, maybe, such a long time in power is truly astonishing. Continental Europeans tend to switch governments, uh, if not at least every other election. Why isn't that the case in the UK? He blames first past the post partly, but he ends by saying, why is it that Labour has managed to win so few elections? See, that to me is the key, frankly, not the vote. It's very easy to blame a voting system. If the Labour Party was more functional as a governing party, it would win a few more elections. The bar is much higher for Labour. I understand that uh, with the British media and all the other uh, issues. But they have been hopeless at framing arguments to appeal to a wide range of voters. And they've had plenty of ways in which it could have been done. So I think that's the main reason. You know, there are other things, the media much more supportive, England's tendency to vote conservative unless given huge reasons not to do so, etc. And yes, the voting system currently helps the conservatives, but there have been times when first past the post helped Labour. Um, So I don't think it's the voting system. But um, anyway, thank you, Robert. Uh, Daniel Shaw says, is Harold Wilson's performance a better model for Keir Starmer to stop study and copy than that of Tony Blair and New Labour? I think it's much closer to Starmer's challenges, the Wilson challenges, uh, than Blair and New Labour, actually, Daniel. For the time being, it seems that Keir Starmer has opted um, in a way, by the way, that Tony Blair didn't do, but Neil Kinnock did, of that, in inverted commas, taking on your party mould. I think some of those around Keir Starmer think that's what Tony Blair did. He really didn't. 
He did do Clause 4, but that was relatively straightforward. Harold Wilson had disowned Clause 4, um, but he didn't sort of do much. The only thing that Tony Blair did do was, as Prime Minister, tried to stop Ken Livingston from becoming Mayor of London. Um, and that was a sort of taking on of the left. But he apologised for that subsequently, when Livingston was a success. Um, so, but Wilson... As someone who kept the party, Labour Party, deeply divided Labour Party then, more so than now, united in a position to win elections. I think there are some interesting lessons from that Wilson era. Uh, Venetia Kane, I kind of at the end of the whole, my kind of reflections on the my two big themes of, of this year, one of them being kind of Brexit and being played out in a more overt way, Um uh, anyway, I said at the end, yeah, I can't see any other way around than at some point getting back into this European Union. Venetia uh, Kane says, "No, no, no. There are there is a you know there, there's a there are many other options. Uh, Norway, um, which of course is uh, inside uh, the single market and so on, um, uh, where you then get the economic advantages. So you could do it sort of through different ways. There are other ways as well, Venetia. Switzerland has a different model to what Britain is doing and so on. Um, so, yeah, um, there are other ways. And, and that is clearly a more likely route over years and years and years. There will be endless disputes about being a rule taker and not a rule maker. And, you know, oh, we lose all our advantages and get very, you know, there'll be endless debate about it. Which why in the end, you know, say a huge, huge Titanic political figure might be able to say, look, I'm going to, I've said I'll do what it takes to get this country's economy buoyant again. And I've just decided one of the things that it takes is to get us back in. I don't know. I mean, you know, I'm sort of, completely understand it's that's fantastical and uh, your route though very thorny is a more likely one slower um oh well yeah we're getting very european this week very european vincent bowden writes i live now in the south of the netherlands i'm a long-term listener and first-time emailer to your excellent show thank you vincent hope you're having a good time there in the netherlands i guess i'm one of mrs may's citizens of nowhere I'm one of the great Geordie diaspora who left the Northeast in the mid-80s. I went to the Northeast in the mid-80s, Vincent. I went to work in uh, Newcastle, Radio Newcastle. Anyway, uh, Vincent went all over the place. Um, and after 12 years in the South Midlands, I moved to mainland Europe in 1998 and have lived for nearly 25 years in the Netherlands, Belgium, Switzerland, and have looked on in horror at uh, Brexit. He gives an example. My daughter, now living in London, sent me some books for Christmas with a retail value of 40 to 50 euros. She paid 15 euros postage. I received a letter today from the Dutch customs saying that following Brexit, I have to pay another 18 euros before I can get the package. Crazy little thing, but death by a thousand cuts. Yeah. Uh, he says, when will we see the opposition start to build up a case against this decision, Vincent, when they consider it politically safe to do so? They know all the um, crazy outcomes of this. And uh, as I've said many times on this podcast, and many of you have, there are ways of framing arguments around it. They need to start doing so. Uh, still committed to Brexit, but not this form of Brexit. Anyway, oh, see you next time at Barna Castle. Oh, yeah, Vincent, did you, you, you're coming up. I'm going to go to Barna Castle again this year, the Witham, the great Witham Arts Centre. Uh, is that ne nearer for you in the Netherlands uh, than King's Place? Anyway, look forward to seeing you. And finally, Helen Gordon, the baker. Helen, you've got rivals now, lots of bakers, even on this very podcast. Um, she's she's analysing how long prime ministers last and i hope you've read my book helen because the prime ministers we never had one of the big lessons is prime ministers who do make it last a lot longer and that's why we have so many prime ministers we never had a lot longer than people assume they're going to although she notes johnson's sole role currently seems to be to pop up at vaccine centers even though it probably deters people from turning up for vaccination yeah imagine 
if you finally pluck up the courage as a skeptic to go and get yourself vaccinated, just come in here, dressed up as a nurse, you know, he always more comfortable dressed up as someone else. Um, but yeah, he, he, as well, I've said, Helen, I hope you, I said it at uh, that King's Place show. He, Boris Johnson, is most at ease dressing up, whether as a policeman, a nurse, a builder, and there's going to be a lot more of that. Anyway, I hope there's going to be a lot more of your bread, Helen, in the year to come, 2022. We're already in it, aren't we? And already there are twists and turns. Blimey, I've gone on for more than an hour, but that, and I'm sorry if I haven't got to your question, got loads this week, but do keep them coming. You know the email address. I better give it to you um, because if I can't remember it, there's no way you should feel obliged to. SteveRick14 at iCloud.com. SteveRick14 at iCloud.com. Have a great week making sense of all the twists and turns and get those tickets for King's Place on Monday, January the 24th, because we're going to be doing then what kind of, I think we do better than we, not the royal we, us lot together, just to kind of contextualise, you know, where does this government, and it's, it's in deep trouble, deep trouble of that, you know, most conservatives would agree with as well, but how deep? Let's compare with previous governments and prime ministers. And I think through doing that, we'll get a sense of what might happen with this one in the coming year. Anyway, thank you all for tuning in. I hope you've baked bread, gone running, walked on a river, walked the dogs, um, and let's all get together next week to make sense of it all. Thank you very much. Bye. Bye. 